Y'all turn with me to John 21 this morning. John 21, verse 1. We're closing a series today called Hero School. We're talking about how God uses ordinary men and women, just like you and me, flawed, flawed and ordinary to do extraordinary things. And He can use you to do amazing things too. In fact, that's His plan. And we've looked at people who had all kinds of issues, all kinds of flaws, all kinds of weakness and doubts, and how God did amazing things, extraordinary things in the world through them. Today we're going to look at a guy named Peter. And we'll talk about him in just a moment. I want to start by telling you about a trip I took four years ago. Four years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Israel for the very first time. In Jerusalem, there are two sites that are disputed between. uh, Two sites that are possible locations for the crucifixion. We don't know where the crucifixion actually took place. All the Bible says is that it was on a, a hill called Golgotha in Aramaic. In, Cal- in Latin, it's called Calvary. It means place of the skull. We don't know where that was. But about 300 years after Christ, the mother of the reigning Caesar, Constantine, his mother was a devout woman of faith, woman of faith in Christ. She discovered a location that she believed was the place the Holy Spirit had led her to where Jesus was crucified. And they built a church there called the the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And it's still there to this day. So it's a a, a thousands of year old church. uh, And it's, you know, it's a very holy place. It's a very historic place. Kings were anointed there. When you go into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it doesn't look like a church here. There's no pews. There's no pulpit. There's no choir loft. No stained glass windows. It's, It's a shrine of sorts. It's There's a lot of icons, there's incense in the air, a lot of gold, things hanging from the ceiling. There's a hole in the floor at a certain location where they believe that's where the the cross was actually mounted. And people are are bowing before that area and praying over there. There's another location a few steps away where they think Christ was actually buried. There's a hole in the ground there where they've uh, found a little grotto where they think the actual tomb was. And then in another location in the church, there's a, there's a slab of rock that's called the anointing stone. And tradition says that the anointing stone was the place where they laid Jesus' body to anoint him for burial, where Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus cleansed his body and prepared him uh, to be buried. And we saw pilgrims there bowing before the, the anointing stone, kneeling there and kissing the stone and rubbing uh, their, their swatches of cloth and, and pieces of paper on it. And then from there, we went to the other disputed location called the Garden Tomb. It's all the way across Jerusalem. Uh, The Garden Tomb is also called Gordon's Calvary because it was discovered by a a British army officer named Gordon in the 1800s. He was visiting Jerusalem and looked out his window and he saw a hill in the distance that looked like a skull. And you can look it up on your smartphone if you want to. It won't offend me at all. Um, it, It does sort of look like a skull when you look at it. And so, because they discovered that, they started digging around to see if they could find anything else. And the archaeologists found, uh, when they went down several layers, they found an olive press that they were able to date uh, specifically to the first century. So it was there when Jesus was there. And a few steps away, they uncovered a tomb, an actual tomb cut into the limestone. And you can go and you can stand and look inside that tomb and imagine, is that the place where Jesus' body lay, where that stone was rolled away and He rose again from the dead? Now, our guide that day was an English pastor who was retired. He told us he had actually grown up in Liverpool 
And so, of course, somebody in our crowd, it wasn't me, I promise, said, so did you know the Beatles? And he said, yeah, I did. They were in high school when I was in junior high. I actually skipped school one day to go hear them sing in a local pub. But he was such a good guide. He, he helped us understand uh, how they had found this location. And then he said something real significant to us. He said, I don't know and I can't promise you that this is exactly where Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again. What I can promise you is it did happen. We took the Lord's Supper there as a group that day, and I remember leaving that day thinking, okay, this is the spot. I know this is the spot. The other place can't be it. This, this feels right. I just felt it in my gut. And honestly, I felt a little bit sorry for the pilgrims who go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And I thought, you know, it's, they're just so superstitious and ignorant. They don't know what they're doing, but we found the real place. Well, the man who took us to Jerusalem, the man who brought us, who's actually from Victoria near where I grew up, uh, who led us there and was our guide for the week, he said something later that week that really set me straight. He said, sometimes when I'm here, and I've been here many times, sometimes when I'm here and I have a day off, I'll just go out to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre before dawn, and I'll sit and I'll watch the pilgrims come to the anointing stone. And he said, you can look at them and tell they're from all parts of the world. Some of them are Indian. Some of them are from Eastern Europe. Some are from Africa. And they're obviously poor. They've spent every dime they've had, all their life savings just getting here. Bus tickets. It's taken them weeks at times. They've walked. And they don't know the Bible. Probably most of them don't have access to Bibles. Even those who could probably can't read So they don't really know theology like most of us American Christians know theology. They haven't had the opportunity to to hear Scripture taught or read it for themselves. And he said, so as I'm sitting there and I'm watching them come and kneel before this stone, I want to go up and, and there's a part of me that wants to grab them and say, hey, don't you know that Jesus, you didn't have to come all the way here to meet Jesus. He'll come to you right where you are. He's not, he's not in prison in this place and there's nothing. We don't even know if the stone is the real one, so why are you doing this? He said, but at the same time, I, I see them and I think about that story in the Gospels, of the sinful woman who came into the dinner party where Jesus was a guest. And it's a, here's Jesus eating in the home of a rich man, a rare thing for him. He spent most of his time around people who were poor. And this sinful woman comes in, and everyone knows because she's got this reputation all around town. Everyone knows who she is and what she's done. And she has this expensive vial of perfume that she pours over Jesus' head, and she kisses his feet. And Jesus knows this woman doesn't know theology. She doesn't know Scripture. She doesn't know the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. And she certainly doesn't have a commendable lifestyle. And yet he blesses this woman. He says, what you've done will be remembered forever. And he puts to shame his wealthy, his righteous host. And our guide said, I look at those people coming and kneeling before that anointing stone and I think, They may not know everything there is to know. And yes, theology matters. It matters what you believe about God. And the Bible matters more than we can say. And that's why we should study it, why we should base our lives on it. But what God loves more than anything else is not head knowledge. What God loves more than anything else is a heart that's broken and people who just come to Him. Whatever it takes, I want to come to Jesus because I'm broken and I need to be put together and you're the only one who can. And so my question to you at the beginning of this sermon is, When's the last time you came to Jesus? I don't mean when's the last time you came to church. I don't need a record of your attendance. I don't mean when's the last time you prayed. I mean when is the last time you came before your God broken in heart 
with no agenda, with no prayer list, just saying, okay, Lord, I'm broken and I need to be put back together. I'm messed up and I need to be set on the right path again. I need your guidance. I need your help. I need your joy. I need to be made new. Because that's the way the Christian life is meant to be lived. So we're looking at Peter today, and and there's a reason why we're looking at him. Peter was an interesting guy. Even if you didn't grow up in church and and don't know the Bible well, you've probably heard of Peter because you've heard jokes about heaven, right? And what happens in every joke about heaven? At some point, St. Peter shows up. He's the guy at the gates and all the jokes about heaven. Well, the real Peter, not the one in the jokes, was an interesting man, a very flawed man. He was the first of the disciples, and that was for a reason. Peter was a guy who liked being first. When you read the Gospels, it's obvious Peter wanted to always say the first thing. He always wanted to be the chief. He always wanted to be the head. By the way, do you know anybody like that? Anybody who always has to have the last word, always has to win? I know you do. Some of you are like, yeah, that's me. You know, it's really fun to mess with people like that. And and here's, here's what you could do. If you're walking with someone who always has to be first, if you could just, don't say anything, just very subtly, Walk slightly faster than them. Try it. Try it today. See what happens because after a few minutes, you'll both be sprinting. It'll be great. So this is Peter. Peter always had to be first. When Jesus is walking on the water and everybody else, their jaws have dropped, what does Peter say? I want to do that too. He's the first one out of the boat. When Jesus is up on the mountain of transfiguration and Elijah and Moses show up, of all people, and Jesus' body is transformed, transfigured into this form they've never seen before. And Peter, James, and John are up there. Who speaks? Peter. You don't know what he's talking about, but he has to say something because he's got to be first. When Jesus is asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? Only Peter is bold enough to speak up and say, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And on the night before Jesus died, when he had his last supper with his disciples, he says this shocking thing. He says, tonight one of you will betray me. And they all, of course, say, not me, Lord, surely not me. But Peter has to be first. He has to be the best. And so he says, even if all the rest of these deny you, even if all the rest of these run away, I will stay with you even if I have to die. And Jesus looks him in the eye and says, but Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, before this night is even over. And then the unthinkable happens. Jesus and and the disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane in that olive grove and Jesus is praying and the disciples are are nodding off. And Jesus is arrested. This this, This mob comes with torches and clubs and they take Him captive. And Peter, who has to be the one in charge, he pulls his sword and he attacks the first man he sees. Cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. And he bends down into the dirt and picks up that bloody ear and he he sticks it back on. And he allows himself to be taken without a fight. And the disciples flee. but, But Peter follows at a distance. As far as we know, he's the only one who goes to the home of Caiaphas the high priest, because that's where they take Jesus for this illegal trial in the middle of the night with just a select group of the Sanhedrin who are on their side. And they're gathered there in the home of of Caiaphas, and Peter and some other men, probably servants of the high priest, are outside warming their hands by a fire. It's a chilly early spring morning. And Peter's got one eye on Jesus. He wants to know what is going to happen. What's going to happen to him? 
And in the light of that fire, in the, in the light of those coals, someone looks at Peter's face and he looks familiar and they say, I think I, think I saw you with that Nazarene. And, and Peter says, no, 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 not me. You got it all wrong. And a few minutes later, a second man says, yeah, I recognize you. You were with him. Peter says, no, not me. It's a case of mistaken identity. It must be someone else. And a few minutes later, someone says, but your accent gives you away. I'd recognize that hit Galilean accent anywhere. You are one of his followers. And this time, Peter calls down curses on himself. I, may God strike me dead if I'm lying, but I have never met the man. And right then, right at that moment, the, the rooster crows for the first time. And Jesus, right in the midst of the trial of His life, hears the rooster and He turns and He looks at Peter and Peter looks at Him. And Peter knows what He's done. And He breaks down and weeps and He cries and He leaves and He flees. And that's got to be the longest day of His life. Knowing what's happening to Jesus, but too ashamed to go up on that hill and watch it happen. And that Saturday has got to be even longer. Sitting there in the upper room with those disciples and wondering, do they know what I did? Has anyone told them? Knowing that Judas has already hung himself and wondering to himself, maybe I should do the same. Maybe if I had any honor, I'd be swinging from the end of a rope too. And then that Sunday morning, when the women come back from the tomb screaming and, and shouting hysterically, he's gone, he's gone, we don't know his, where his body is. And, and Mary, crazy Mary that Jesus cast the seven demons out of, Mary says, he spoke to me, I know he's risen. The Bible says that Peter and John at that point ran to the tomb, ran as fast as they could. And it says John got there first. And the Bible doesn't say this, but I believe Peter said, I had a rock in my sandal. That's why I didn't get here first. I tweaked a hammy. I didn't hear the gun go off. Let's do this again. They get to the tomb. John looks inside. Peter's not having any of that. He barrels right on in. There's no body there, but the grave clothes are. And he thinks, how weird is that? Because if someone stole his body, why would they unwrap him? And if they took the time to unwrap him, why would they take the time to neatly fold the clothes? He doesn't know what to make of this. But later that day, he finds out Jesus appears in the midst of them. They're in a locked room, terrified of the Sanhedrin. And there stands the Lord. Nail holes in his hands and feet, but him just the same. He speaks to them for a while and then suddenly he's gone again. Eight days later, he comes back. This time Thomas is with them, doubting Thomas who refused to believe that Christ was risen. And Jesus says, put your finger in the nail holes. Test me and see, it's me. Both times, Peter has the agonizing uh, experience of seeing this one who he loves, who he has betrayed, but not being able to take him aside and say, Lord, please forgive me for what I did. And so for days and days, Peter wonders, does he know? Of course he knows. What does he think of me now? Where do I stand? What can I do? So after a while, the disciples recognize either one of two things is going to happen. We're going to get arrested if we stay in Jerusalem, or our families are going to starve to death. We need to go home. And they make the long trip north to Galilee. And once there, Peter says, I don't know what else to do, so let's go fishing. This, this, this much I do know. I know how to fish. Peter and Andrew, James and John are, are, are old school fishermen. They know how to, how to fish on the Sea of Galilee. The other, the other remaining seven disciples probably don't know much about fishing, but they follow along. And all night long, all night long, they cast their net and draw it in. Cast their net and draw it in. Nothing. 
You ever had a night like that on the water? These guys, their life depended on it. Can you imagine the despair they felt? We came home just to feed our families and now we can't even do that. The dawn is breaking and they see someone on the shoreline. And that's where we pick up the story. John 21, verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Do you find it remarkable that someone took the time to count the fish? Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. Now think about this. When Judas realized what he had done and who he had done it to, he took his own life. Peter, on the other hand, has hurt Jesus just as bad as Judas did. But his response is the exact opposite. He can't wait to get with Jesus. He can't wait to come into His presence. He doesn't want to flee away. He doesn't want to run. He wants to get right with Him. In fact, he's not even patient enough to wait for the boat to get to the shore. It's only 100 yards away, but that boat's towing 153 fish. So he dives over the side of that boat like Forrest Gump into Bayou Labatry swimming to Lieutenant Dan. He just, he just has to get there. I can swim 100 yards faster than this boat can paddle. And when he gets there, what does he find? Yet another charcoal fire. Yet another question asked him three times. So let's read that part of the story. Verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I am convinced that Jesus engineered this entire encounter just for Peter's benefit. He knew, he knew what Peter was going through. He knew what he was feeling. Jesus set up the fire. He set up the question. He even called him Simon instead of Peter. It's like I'm, I'm getting back, back down to who you are at the base root level Peter. And, and notice he asks him, the first question he asks is, do you love me more than these? In other words, Peter, are you first? Are you number one? Do you love me more than anybody else? And this time, Peter's answer is a little different. He doesn't rise to the challenge. He's learned. I'm a broken man. I can't love you more than anybody else. Because I'm a sinner. All he says is, Lord, you know. You know that I love you the best I can love you. You know that I love you with all that I have. But it's not better than anybody else's. 
Jesus asked him three times, why three? Why three times around a fire? It's obvious, isn't it? This is Jesus' way of saying to Peter without saying it, I know what you did, and my plans for you have still not changed. I know what you did, and it hurt me deeply. But remember that day I called you the rock, Peter? Peter, that, that, that's a name that means the rock, the, the foundation upon which I'll build my church. That's still the plan. The worst sin you can possibly commit, turning your back on me, will not change my plans for you. And the really exciting thing is, Peter was never the same after that day. Peter goes on and he's standing with the disciples on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls upon him and Peter is so inspired, he gets up and begins to preach. For the first time, having the first word is a good thing. He gets up and he speaks to all the people gathered in that, in that holy city on that holy day. And 3,000 people become Christians that day. The church goes from a few hundred to several thousand in one day. That's a pretty good day. Peter then stands in front of the Sanhedrin, the very men who condemned Jesus to death, the very men he was so afraid of just a few weeks before. He says, you can kill me if you want, but I'm not going to stop speaking about the name of Jesus Christ. I have to obey God rather than men. Peter stands in the home of a Roman centurion, Cornelius, and becomes the first Christian to, to speak the words of the gospel to a non-Jew. As a, as a non-Jew, I say hallelujah for that. Peter broke that racial barrier before anyone thought it was possible. Peter leads the Jerusalem church. He writes two books of Scripture, dies a martyr's death. Tradition says that he demanded to be crucified upside down so that he wouldn't be killed in the same way as his Lord because he wasn't worthy. That's a great life. And none of it would have happened except for one thing. Not Peter's big mouth, not his fishing skills, not his knowledge of the Word of God, his brokenness. His willingness to come before Jesus and say, I need you. I need you. See, there are two kinds of people we see in the Gospels. Two kinds of people who meet Jesus. There are those who fall on their knees before Him and say, I will give you my life. I will follow you to the ends of the earth. And there are people who say, you need to die. It's basically, there's nobody in the Gospels neutral about Jesus. Nobody ever sat and listened to Him teach and walked away and said, you know, He's a pretty good speaker. I think He's all right. No, you either want to follow Him or kill Him. That's just the way it is. And in a room this size, there are plenty of people who fall into one of two categories. There are people, I'm sure, in this room who would say, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I believe the right things about Jesus. I go to church sometimes. And, and, and I obey the rules. I, I mean, I'm not perfect. But compared to some of the people I know, I'm doing pretty well. People, are, people I'm talking about are self-satisfied. Not, I don't mean content with the life God has given them. I mean satisfied with who they are on the inside. Satisfied with their own sense of morality. And some of those people are not religious folks. They've just kind of come up with their own idea. This is what it is to be a good, to be a good person, to live a good life, and they're doing their best. And others of them are uh, proclaiming themselves as Christians. Maybe they've been baptized when they were kids. Or maybe, maybe they come to church on a regular basis. Maybe they've got a nice suit. 
And they know how to follow the rules, at least the big ones. But they've never been broken before the Father. They've never come to Him for salvation. Or if they have, there's a lot of Christians out there who think that the Gospel is the entry point into the Christian life and that's it. It's entry-level Christianity and after that you just sort of sit and wait for heaven. And they haven't realized if you're a follower of Christ, you never get over the Gospel. Because every day you wake up and say, I can't do it without you. Tim Keller tells the story of when he was a young pastor and he had a couple in his church that came and met with him one day and, and the wife said, listen, I know, I know no one knows this outside of our home, but we're having a hard time. And uh, every night when I go home, he's, he's on me about something and, and he's very, very abusive in his speech. And I thought I could take it. I thought I could kind of win him over, but I, I can't anymore. It's, it's just, it drives me to tears. It's depressing me. I, I can't live like this anymore. And the husband said, I don't know what she's complaining about. She knew when we got married that I've, I've got a harsh temper, that, that I'm plain spoken, and, and I'm, I'm just not one of these nice guys, but, but I've never laid a hand on her. There's a whole lot of men that are worse to their wives than I am. She just needs to understand that's who I am and, and put up with it. Well, a few weeks later, that man called Pastor Keller and said, she moved out. And I'm, I'm, I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Can you tell me what to do? His, his whole tone had changed. Now he was willing to change. So Keller sat down with him and, and talked about, here's what the Bible says a husband should be and, and gave him some practical tips. Here's what you can do. And, and he promised, I will be a new man. And he called his wife and he said, I've met with the pastor and I'm, I'm, I'm a different person now. It's not going to be the same. You please come home and just see. And she did come home. And for a while it was different. But after a couple of weeks, the abuse started again. And this time, she packed her bags and left for good. And Keller says, I look back at that and I think that's, that's a story of someone who is willing to say, yeah, I'm a sinner, but never get specific about it. Willing to say, I'm not perfect, but never really took their own sin seriously. Never really sat down before God and said, Lord, I can't do this without you. I'm broken and I need to be made whole. How many others sit in churches like this Sunday after Sunday just like that? There's another kind of person here today, I'm sure. I hope so, at least. And that's the person who has the opposite problem, who says, I know I'm broken, but I don't think God can save me. I don't think He would want to, because He knows what I've done. He knows the things I've said and, and the things I've participated in and the things I'm capable of. He knows what's in my heart. You may be even thinking to yourself, well, I hope none of these other people know what I've done in the past. I hope none of these well-dressed and, and righteous and moral people know the kind of things I'm guilty of. And if that's how you feel this morning, let me say something very, very important to you. You look around this room, what you'll see is one kind of person. And that is a sinful person. Every person in this room is a sinner. Every person in this room is broken. This is not a museum for saints. This is not a hall of fame for godly people. This is a hospital for broken sinners. And we come here each week not to prove how good we are. We come here this week because we still don't have it right yet. Guess what? When you get it right, when you become perfectly righteous, you have my permission to stop coming. I'm still here. We're broken people who need a Savior. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of that. So, whichever of those categories you might happen to fall into, 
or if you're somewhere on the, in the middle. Here's what you need to do this Easter day. Follow the advice and the actions and the example of Simon Peter and throw yourself over the side of that boat and get to Jesus as fast as you can and come to Him dripping wet and undignified and just kneel before Him and say, Lord, I need You to fix me. I can't be the person I need to be. I can't be the student I need to be, the husband, the wife, the father or mother, the, the, the neighbor, the coworker. I can't be the man or woman I want to be without You. Teach me to be dependent. Teach me to be repentant daily. The people who come to Jesus and come filled with their own idea of sin their own idea of worthlessness, and their idea of His ability to rescue. Those people are never the same again. So come to Him today.